Rough so you can turn your Bibles to, well, this is going to be tricky. Um, we're, uh, we're talking about being a family today and um, what a, being a family means biblically. And we're going to be doing, in some ways, a biblical theology of family. So you can turn to Genesis 2 to start off with, but um, we're going to be moving around, if you will, a little bit in the process of just kind of thinking this through together. Um, what does it mean to be a family? Why is family so important? Especially because in today's world, if you look around, so look at the, into the Father's world, so to speak, you see a lot of different ideas about families. Uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks listed the following statistics about global changes in family structure. He said, the number of Americans who are living alone has shut up from 9% in 1950 to 28% today. So 9% to 28 percent. In 1990, 65 percent of Americans said that children are very important to a successful marriage. In 2012, only 41 percent of Americans said they believe that. In Scandinavia, rather than 28 percent living alone, 40 to 45 percent of people live alone. Can you imagine? Like half of the society living alone. In Spain, the number of births per year is now lower than it was in the 18th century. 30% of German women say they do not intend to have children. A majority of Taiwanese women under 50 do not want children. In 35 years, fertility rates in Brazil have dropped from 4.3 babies per woman to 1.9 babies per woman. Now, obviously there's a lot of uh, trauma associated with childbirth itself, but just to, just to notice the desire, the change in what people think of as important to their lives... Brooks goes on to conclude, these are all stunningly fast cultural and demographic shifts. The world is moving in the same basic direction from societies oriented around the two-parent family to cafeteria societies with many options. A Japanese researcher quoted by Brooks was much blunter. Under the social and economic systems of developed countries, the cost of a child outweighs the child's usefulness, as if that's the point of children, is to be useful. And... Uh, but that, that is the direction of society. That's the direction that it's headed. And you can see those statistics not just, uh, in, in, so not just in statistics, you can see them in, in, in anecdotes as well. There's uh, two movie makers who are trying to make this, just kind of talk about what does it mean to be a child. And they, they created this kind of short film about uh, a girl and her, her boyfriend, and, uh, and they had a child together. And they were just kind of drifting along, uh, kind of through town. And it, kind of the question in, through the movie was, who's really the child? The child or the mother and the father who are just kind of drifting through life? Um, and then uh, even thinking about going to the future, what do, what do young people want out of life? And the U.S. Uh, Census Bureau took these statistics about life transitions, said young adults today... What do they most, what thing is most important to becoming an adult? They said the 62% say completed formal schooling. So you, you complete all the schooling you want to take, then you become an adult. 62% said that. Employed full time, 52% said that, because of course you could be employed full time and not have uh, a job that's really good enough for that, for having your own life, so to speak. Capable of supporting a family financially, again, it's again at 50%. Financially independent from parents, 
uh, 43%, so that's not really good for you parents out there. Um, no longer living in the parents' house, 26%, again. And getting married, 12%. Rod Dreher comments, stunningly, less than half of Americans aged 18 to 34 say marriage and family are part of being an adult. All the other factors have to do with achieving personal autonomy. To be an adult, then, is to be free to exercise one's will independently of obligations to others, including spouse and children. To choose spouse and children, formerly the most distinctive marks of adulthood, is now considered secondary to adulthood by most American adults. Is that really a biblical family? Is that what the Bible says about family? In fact, the Bible addresses this in a variety of ways. In, and it, one of the key things you see is that God made the family to be a, a, not just a part of society as a whole, but really to reflect who he is and what is going on with being who, what being human, frankly, is. In fact, it's, it got so bad even in Israelite days that Malachi had to write in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God is saying, in a sense, like being part of a family and caring about family is so important that if people don't do it, he's, worthy. It's, he's like, I'll just start over again. I'll wipe everybody off the face of the earth. So, so society's idea of how important family is and God's idea about how, how important family is are, to, are obviously a little bit apart. And what I want to do this morning is kind of just look together at what God says about family, what, what, what's involved in the family, what's the importance of family. And we're not teaching this, and I don't want to bring this from the perspective of moral superiority. Like if, if you think, if you believe like the Bible, then you're superior to anyone else. That's not the goal here. The goal really is to say, this is reality. This is what God made his world to be. We're not morally superior for believing this. We're just recognizing reality and what it means and how things operate in God's world. This is our Father's world, right? We just sang it. And if that's true, then we should live in it. And if we live in it the way God wants us to, then we're not, we're not morally superior. We're just acknowledging who God is and living underneath of him. So let's look together at some of the basics for what it means to be a family. The first one I'm going to say is to provide for and protect one another. To provide for and protect one another. There's two words in the Hebrew that mean family. And in Greek too, the, the, there's correlations. The first one is the idea of household, which just makes sense, right? When you talk about being part of a family, you think the people who are under one roof, so to speak, right? The, uh, the idea of a household. And, and you get that idea from Genesis 2, right? God... God brings Adam and Eve together, and he says there'll be one flesh, and, you know, they'll separate from father and mother and become one flesh. They'll, in a sense, they'll be their own family. They'll be their own household. And, and you have the idea of just, in, in Genesis 2, the idea is that God made Eden and said, make, you take this garden plan, so to speak, and spread it out over the entire earth. And so you have this idea of turning the earth into a, a garden, in a sense, as Men and women have children and spread the kind of just the care of the earth over the entire planet. And so the idea is, is of, of a household is to, 
is to provide for each other and to help one another to live in God's world in order to understand how to be blessed in the land. You see, the land is a picture of the blessing of God. In fact, it's not just a picture. It's usually how God's blessing comes to us, right? We plant things, things grow, we get food, right? And it's just part of being in God's world is we understand God created the land in order to bless us and for us to, prov- to protect and to care for the land because it does bless us. And the problem is, is we live in a world that doesn't, it doesn't, if, if you don't care, the point is if you don't care for family, if, if that's not the intention of family, then, then we don't learn how to live in God's world, in a sense. The, think of it this way, I, when I was a young parent, uh, you get a child, and, uh, and you start to care for them, and you learn really quickly that when they start to cry, you don't always know why, Right? And you can't always solve the problem. And so you're sitting there frustrated, like, what do I do with this kid? They're crying. I can't seem to stop it. I don't know what to do. And usually what happens is you call over the grandparents. You're like, hey, what do I do? I've got this kid. He's, he doesn't stop crying. And what, what I noticed with, with, with uh, the grandparents in my life, uh, for my kids, that is, uh, is that what they would do often was they would redirect the child, right? They'd be like, okay, hey. You know, hey, you want to come play with this, or you want to do this, or, you know, hey. And they would just start interacting with the child. And, and I thought, well, no, no, I just want him to stop crying. I don't want to, like, have to do stuff with him, you know what I mean? And, uh, and, and I learned that part of what's happening is, is you're just helping to redirect the child into other things. Because you're helping ultimately to help them regulate their emotions. You're helping them to realize that there's life outside of this moment. And, and ultimately, in some ways, what you're doing as a parent is you're providing an understanding that in God's world, things might not go well all the time, but there's always hope. There's always hope. There's always the next thing that's coming along that where God could do something good in the midst of his world. And we look around our world today and we see the breakdown of the family and one of the r- things that happens as a result of the breakdown of the family is the breakdown of hope. Is it, does it not? We, 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 we see people that are acting not out of hope, like, okay, I'm in a bad moment, but I'm going to hope for the f- good in the future. We see people acting out of violence instead. We see people saying, you know what, I have no hope for anything better in the future. I'm just going to destroy everything around me. And the family is God's, in a sense, primary way that he teaches people that they can have hope. And we provide that through the family, through just those daily interactions, those daily understandings. And it's supposed to be, in that sense, in the household. Those people that are under one roof, so to speak, are supposed to provide for one another and and care for one another and help ultimately to help people see that there is hope in the world. There's two New Testament verses that talk about this idea in the household. The first one is 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14. You see he's talking to them, but he, he refers to, in a sense, them as his spiritual children, but he makes the analogy of, of what parents to children are supposed to be. He says, for children are not, not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. The point is, is that there's, in the household, there's, there's this provision. There's, there's somebody who's responsible to provide and care. 
in the scenario. Then you have also this in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, there's that idea again, he has denied the faith and is worse than an, an unbeliever. Here, here he's saying, look, you know, again, this isn't a moral superiority thing. This is just understanding this. If you live in God's world and you're, you, you understand that family is important and you're responsible to care for them, and if you disregard that, if you say, I'm not going to care for members of my household, it's, it's like you don't even understand who God is. <laughs> much less what he really wants. And so this, this, is, a, this is something that's really Im- important for families, and of course we, we understand that in a sense. It's, it's just intrinsic. We understand, hey, if you have a family and then you have children, somebody's got to care for the children. There's this, this is this household that needs to take place. But there's another a- aspect here that is, is found in families, and oh, one of the key kind of verses that can help us understand that is Genesis 12, verse 3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is a different word for families. It, it doesn't arise un- until after Genesis 10. Um, and it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's more often translated in the Hebrew Bible clans, actually, than families. It's more often translated clans. So you could say, and in you all the clans of the earth will be blessed. You say, well, why does this word arise? Why is this so important? Why is this actually, the word household is usually just translated household, not families. This is the word that's translated family. So why, why is kind of that extended family kind of concept, why is that so important here? Well, think back in the story, right? Like, how has God worked up to this point? He's created us. He's placed us in the land. He's given us, you know, families to live together with. But what happened There was violence. (laughs) No one really cared and provided hope for people, really, in that sense. And and it went from people living for God and understanding who God is in his world to living for themselves. And by Noah's time, what does it say? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and there was violence everywhere, right? No one really cared for anyone else. So in Genesis 9, after the flood, God says to Noah and his family— as a covenant with mankind, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And part of this covenant now is that if a man sheds another man's blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. The idea of capital punishment or justice comes into play here where, where you have the idea of, okay, uh, we have to be responsible for one another. Kind of the am I my brother's keeper kind of concept. And so what you see is, is this idea of clan comes in, and this is obviously a little bit more of a political unit, not just a kind of like, hey, we care for each other thing, but we're responsible to protect one another. And that's the idea of protection that comes in the family. We're, we're responsible to make sure that justice is provided for one another. This, this echoes then through the, through the Old Testament in a variety of ways. The idea of protection and providing protection for one another within the extended family. And, and so you have the idea of, first of all, like the kinsman redeemer, right? That it is that, hey, within my family, there's someone who's, who's losing their land, they're losing their property, they're losing their, their livelihood, and I'm going to step in, and I'm going to provide for them. Because why? Because they're part of the family. I'm going to pro- protect them and provide for them protection. And, and, uh, and so that's most illustrated right with the story of Ruth and how Boaz is the kinsman redeemer for her and her family and the family's land. 
The, the, the same word for kinsman redeemer is also used for, in the situation of, of murder, it's used for, uh, it's, it's translated differently in English to avenger of blood, but it's the same word in Hebrew. The idea is you're redeeming the murder of your, of your family member, your extended family member, by making sure that they're provided justice for. And so you're, you're responsible as, as a part of the family to make sure that justice is done. And so you have this within, with, and I realize that's different than our society, right? But it, it, in those times, periods, it went back to the, that extended family to make sure justice was provided for, both positively in the case of, hey, can we, can we protect and pro- provide protection? But also negatively, when protection hasn't been provided for, how do I take care of justice? And that's a part of what being a family meant in those days. And if you think about it, from, in, in, from God's perspective, even from even an idealistic perspective, who, who do you want to be providing you justice if something goes wrong? Do you want someone, do you want the government who doesn't know you more than maybe a number, right? You know, you know, what's your social security number? Okay, I'll provide justice to, you know, 515, whatever, you know. Um, or, or do you want someone who knows you, who kind of knows your strengths and your weaknesses, who knows what your needs are, and says, okay, I'm going to provide justice to you because I care about you, I love you. Now, obviously, there's ways that, that can be abused, right? You can say, well, I don't care about justice at all. I really only care about you. But, but the point is, is that God made families to be that sense of of provide protection to provide justice for one another he wants us to to love one another enough to do that in fact when you get to the new testament what you find first of all is this idea of clan uh, and and extended family transitions in some ways to the nation but also it transitions to the church where the church is this but also but it's ultimately because of jesus right jesus becomes our kinsman redeemer, right? He becomes our brother who steps in and pro- pro- provides protection to us because we face death, death and destruction because of sin, right? And so as our family member, one who becomes like us, he becomes our brother and he gives his life. Why? Because he treats us like family and he provides protection to us. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19 talk about this, right? For through, through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That in a sense, is, he's saying he's restored access to, to being part of God's family. Jesus has done that as our brother, right? And he goes on to say, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Two, both concepts here that he's been talking about, right? The idea of clanness, we're part of the same group, and householdness, we're, part of, we're under the same roof. And that's why, you see in the New Testament, we're called, often believers are called of one another, brothers and sisters, right? Because we're, we're part of this family. We're providing provision of hope, provision of care to one another, but we're also protecting one another, encouraging one another, providing justice to one another. And again, this is ultimately not biological. And obviously in today's world, that's emphasized a lot, is that families don't have to be biological. But that, that started in the Bible, right? It started with the New Testament, especially where we're part of the family of God. It doesn't matter what blood we're a part of, what family we're a part of, what nation we're a part of. And so that's just a key part of the function of the purpose of the family, to provide care for and to protect one another. 
That's what we do as part of families. But there's more to it than that, and that's the idea of roles that we play. And I just uh, kind of the second point here I have is embrace your roles to know and be known. Embrace your roles to know and be known. We, we play different roles. It seems like, again, if, if you go off what the statistics are saying about how the world looks at family or, or relationships in general, it seems like that we're all kind of going for, let's all have kind of just similar types of relationships with all different types of people. Let's all be friends, for instance. Or let's all just provide generic kindness to one another. Why do we need to be, have, play family roles, so to speak? Especially if the whole point of society is just to have each of us be autonomous, right? If that's the goal, is that we're all autonomous. We can each run our own lives and do our own thing. Then we're simply cogs in one another's attempts at being autonomous, right? We're just, I want to live my own life. I want to do my own thing. Why, why do I need to have expectations put on me that aren't anything beyond that? But being a family means more than one role. It means understanding that roles are actually important. And this comes out not of just, well, just God decided to do that way, this way. He just decided, okay, I'm going to Make a role for a father and a role for a mother, a role for children, roles for brothers, sisters. It's, it's, it's not like he's just like, okay, I'm just going to do it this way. This actually comes out of who he is. Do you realize? Right? This is what it means to be part when God says he's a trinity, a triunity, right? He's three persons in one. Imagine, if you, if you will, if, if God was just one person. There was, in a sense, one mind. <laughs> and everything then becomes in a sense, a, a game of this one mind. Like, okay, like, you're just all separate pieces, and, and, and we're all just trying to get to some ideal perspective that is the one mind's perspective. But God isn't like that. He's actually triune, right? There's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Can you, can you imagine? Just, I, I realize this is probably totally false, but, but you could kind of imagine, right? You, you have three eternal omnipotent, infinite beings, and they run into one, each other one day. And they're like, how do we coexist in the same universe? And they decide, you know what? We're all just going to kind of do our own thing and, uh, and, and go our own way and, and create our own universes. Well, they decide, no, we don't like that idea. So instead, what they do is they say, hey, you know what? Since we're all omnipotent and all-powerful, we could destroy each other, maybe, but uh, we're going to just kind of try to coexist, you know. We're just going to try to make sure we don't step on each other's toes, you know. <laughs> is, that, is that the picture we have of God in the Trinity? No, right? We have a picture of God who's, who's invested in each other's success. Who's like, you know what, we choose to be together. But y- you get it, right? Like, if you're eternal and omnipotent and all-powerful, like, how do you express who you are? Well, you can't do it all in one way. You have to do it in a variety of different ways, especially if you're relating to someone who's also an omnipotent, all-powerful, and infinite, right? And what you see in the Trinity is one, one, the Father takes on the Father's role. He plans, he directs, he guides, he loves. The Son takes on the Son's role. He, he, he obeys his Father, he honors his Father, he executes the Father's plan, he defends the Father's honor, Right? And the Spirit takes on that 
helping role of just, okay, how do I'm going to empower and work. And what you see is that within the Trinity, you see them taking on different roles. Why? In order to express who they are more and more. And then, of course, they create the world. Why? Partially to, for the, us to understand who they really are. We don't know God without God creating the world and then putting the story into place, right? Where just the, we get to see more and more of who God is. Partially because we keep messing up. Like if we didn't mess up, you wouldn't know that God was a redeemer. If, you, if we didn't mess up, you wouldn't know that we're, we, God considers part of, part of the family, right? That Jesus is a brother to us, he views us that way. And, and, and within the family, you think about it, you can't bring all of who you are into every relationship. I bring certain things of who I am into my relationship with Amy, right? We are married together and we work together and we do certain things. I bring different things into my relationship with my, my parents and my siblings and my children. And they say, well, who are you? Are you a father? Are you a husband? Are you a son? Who are you? I'm all of those things. All, those things allow me to be, show off, in a sense, more of who I am. To know myself more. And for me to know others better as well when they play different roles with me. You say, well, I just want to know all of who this one person is. Well, no, again, God is triune. He's not just two people trying to interact together. It's, he's three, and they show off different aspects of who they are in various ways at various times to reveal who they are, and to love one another. And if you don't understand that this is how God's world works, that there are roles you play, and it's not all of who you are to play this one role, but it allows you to both examine who you are better and show who you are better and know others through that role better, then you don't understand God's world, frankly. You don't understand this is part of it. And God wants us to live and and excel in and enjoy the roles that he gives us. In fact, he chastises Israel for not doing that. Notice Micah 7, where it says, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. He's like, I want nothing. Why, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait blood. Each hunts the other with a net. Again, here's back to that violence concept. They're, they're willing to, to go after each other with violence and hunt one another. Why? He doesn't say why yet. He just says, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. So those who are supposed to provide justice, they don't do it. The best of them is like a briar, the uh, most upright of them, a thorn hedge. Can you imagine? He's saying the, the most upright person in the Israelite society at this time is more like walking into thorns. Like, I don't really want to interact with you at all. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. He's like, don't trust anyone. Why? Here's the, finally the why. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Instead of it being a place of provision and protection, it's become a place of, of contempt.
I don't want to live in this role. I don't want to value this person in my life. This isn't just Israel 2,000 years ago. This is today in modern society, right? Like, why do I need this person in my life? And I get that one of the reasons why the breakdown of the families happened is because people aren't honorable. They're not kind. They're not loving. They're not trying to pr provide and protect for one another. But the problem isn't God's design for the family. It's not practicing God's design for the family. So he goes on, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, for God will hear me. God still is on his throne. God is still God's world. You can still go to God. He is still a father to us, even when no one else is. And this is just understanding that you say, well, I don't, I don't have physical children. This isn't quite, I don't have this physical family. It, again, we're not just talking about the physical blood relative family. We're talking about the family of God as well. You have spiritual fathers and mothers. You are, if you have lived in Christ for a while, you probably have spiritual children yourselves. And those are, in some senses, just as important as the blood relatives that you have. You're part of this household of God, your brothers and sisters. You are to provide and protect one another. I was talking to someone this week, and they were making the comments. At the same time, children always care less than the parents, right? Like, if, if children cared for their parents as much as the parents cared for their children, the children would never leave, right? And that's not God's design. God wants them to leave, and most parents eventually want their children to leave. It just might take a while. Um, if they're well-behaved. If they're not well-behaved, you're like, okay, yeah, I can leave any time, you know, it's no big deal. But, but usually you care, right? You care, you want to provide. And what you need to realize is in God's world, you, you, like, you have at least three roles. You are a son, <laughs> you are a father, and you are a brother, you're a sibling, right? And those three roles, at least for me, I, they're, they're important for me to understand that I, if I'm going to understand who I am, and also love people in my life well, I've got to play those three roles well. I need to be a father. I need to understand what my role well is. I need to, to live that out. I need to be faithful and just and kind and providing for my children. It shows, it helps me to understand how to be faithful, how to keep my word, how to be just. Not just in my immediate household, but to other people as well. I'm not just a father, though. I'm a son. I need to listen to my father's instruction, although now it's more just like advice, right? And I need to, I need to honor my parents. If I'm a brother, I need to think, how do I, how do I protect? How do I live as a sibling with my... All three roles are actually really important. In fact, when you look at the New Testament, what you see is that just in Paul's letters to churches, he, what, he's, what does he focus on? In most of his application sections, it's to husbands and wives, to fathers and mothers, and ultimately to masters and slaves. All of, and we, a lot of times in our minds we're thinking, okay, masters and slaves is outside of the home. No, usually, again, in Roman society, masters and slaves is inside the home. It's all household instructions. Why? Because he wants the household to run well. He wants it to honor God. He wants that, that, that household to, to be a place of love and provision and protection. 
the, the point of, of this partially is the erasure of roles, just to say, hey, I'm just going to change all my relationships to be the same. The, the erasure of those roles makes life less rich, less challenging, less self-knowing. You don't know yourself as well. Less fruitful, less people-filled, frankly, because you don't need as many people in your life. And ultimately, less God-glorifying. You need to understand the roles you play. Be a good father if you're a father. Be a good son if you're a son. Be a good brother if you're a brother. And obviously, be a good sister, mother, and daughter if that applies to you. Why? Because these roles help us to live in society. And of course, Satan wants us to not do this. Of course, one of the C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters, right? And it was a way of like pretending that a demon was talking to another demon about how to corrupt a Christian or Christians in general. And uh, it's just fascinating to think in those kind of terms. But in one of the letters, he, he, C.S. Lewis writes this. So this is, a, in a sense, a, a, a demon talking to another demon about how to corrupt someone. He says, In civilized life, domestic hatred usually expresses itself by saying things which would appear quite harmless on paper. The words are not offensive. But in such a voice, or at such a moment, they are not, but they are not far short of a blow in the face. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you can say the right words, but you can say them with the wrong tone, and it's like a slap. To keep this game up, you, he's talking to the demons, must see to it that each of these two fools has a sort of double standard. He's talking about a mother and a son. Your patient must demand that all his own utterances, that is the son, must demand that all his own utterances are to be taken at their face value and judged simply on the actual words, while at the same time judging all his mother's utterances with the, the, the fullest and most oversensitive interpretation of the tone and the context and the suspected intention. She must be encouraged to do the same to him. Hence, from every quarrel they can go both away convinced, or at least nearly convinced, that they are quite innocent— you know the kind of thing. I simply ask her what time of dinner it will be, and she flies into a temper. Once this habit is well established, you have the delightful situation of a human saying things with the express purpose of offending, and yet having a grievance when the offense is taken. <laughs> yeah, irony, right? So he's getting, wants to set up a situation where, hey, I'm going to say something that's offensive, but, but that shouldn't be taken as offensive, and then get offended when you get offended back at me. And isn't, isn't that sometimes the world in which we live, Right? We, we can live in houses and in families where we're taking offense all the time rather than understanding God's way. He's, he, in another section of the, of the same book, he says, Now on to children, talking about mothers. He says, Lovely opportunity for us, the children, especially the little ones. We all know that children are a favorite tool of the enemy. He calls them blessings and gifts and calls parents to lay down their lives for them, just as his son did. Insane, I know. We must convince her that the, the, the agnoxious little people she has charge of are not really worth her sacrifice. When the mother first dreamed of having children, she probably imagined wide, innocent eyes and chubby, happy grins taking up the majority of her days. Do, the best, do your best to shatter those expectations. Instead, draw attention to how, how much they take from her. Let them take and take and take and need and need and need until the mother feels totally spent. Let them start crying at the same time for the most irrational of reasons. Let the noise bother her. Let their bad behavior surprise her. Do your best to make the day-to-day -day monotony of diaper changes, meals, and baths seem simultaneously overwhelming and beneath her. 
Let her think of all the better, more important things she could be doing with her life if only she didn't have the children. Don't let her think about the future responsible, faithful adults she is raising, society changers, friends, workers, husbands, or wives. Don't let her think of them as lifelong companions who... uh, Sorry, I lost my place here. Sorry, don't let her think of them as lifelong companions who will love her, converse with her, or care for her in her old age. Oh, and definitely don't let her think about the grandchildren she might be able to see in their little grubby faces if she looks hard enough now. No, no, no. Thinking ahead to when her work bears fruit, as the enemy calls it, is always a bad idea. Keep words like heritage and legacy far away from the runny noses and jelly stains of the other every day. If there is any last piece of advice I have for you, Wormwood, is to keep the mother looking to her husband or her family for her fulfillment and comfort. We know the enemy is always watching and willing to take the burdens of his children. But if we divert the mother's attention well enough, this fact can, can be forgotten. Make her look to her husband for worth and affirmation. Then when he lets her down, as he is sure to do, she will be ours to torment. Yes, the worst thing that could happen would be for her to turn to him with her needs and inadequacies. Once she realizes that the enemy offers peace that transcends her situation, our work could be utterly compromised. Again, God wants us to see him in the role of father, to see him in the role of brother, to see him in the role of son. Why? Because he's doing those roles. And he wants us to live those roles out. Why? Because we are part of the family of God. And yes, we can, as he's, he's suggesting here, we can get caught up in all the frustrations and inadequacies and irritations and problems. But God calls us to honor one another in love, which is really the last point I want to make here about families, that we're called to honor one another in love. We're to honor the roles, right? To, to honor that role of that they're in, in their life with a certain purpose. They reflect God's care and protection of us in that role that they play. And, and you see that Jesus honored his father, right? He, he says, I, I do what my father wants me to do, you know, but also he says, I do it because I love him, right? He honors the father by, by going to the cross, and the father honors the son by, by exalting him and giving him a name above every name. Like there's this, this, in a sense, this gratefulness engine that drives you to honor the other person, to say, look, I'm so glad you're in my life. This is really what the Trinity is about, right? You have three in- infinite, eternal, all-powerful beings who are glad that they're together, <laughs> that rejoice in one another and honor one another in the different ways that they interact. And so we, too, need to honor people, not just honor their role, but really honor the person in the role, right? Romans 12, verse 10 puts it this way, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. There's no disconnect from loving someone and not honoring them. Why? Because you're grateful for them. There's this this gratitude that's there. In, uh, let me just illustrate the opposite of this, right? In February 19, 1930, there was an issue of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette that ran a story from Vienna, Austria, of a woman named Corinne Ward. She was a struggling actress, and she received a phone call from an attorney saying that she had received an inheritance from a deceased client. So she went 
to the deceased, to the attorney's office, and found out she, that she had received an inheritance from a man called Dr. Masaros. Colin told the attorney she did not know the doctor by that, any doctor by that name, and wondered if there had been some sort of mistake. The lawyer was not surprised that Corin didn't recognize the name, but there was no doubting that Dr. Mazaros knew Corin. According to the uh, attorney, doc, Dr. Mazaros lived in the same city as Corin and had fallen head over heels in love with her. However, he was afraid of talking to her and never worked up the courage to speak to her, let alone say that he loved her. But he followed her until he died, and then he left Corin every penny he had saved over the course of his life, which was over $50,000. He loved her, but he never expressed his love in word or actions. And as a result, the fullness of that love was never realized. Can you imagine? She's a struggling actress, probably alone. She receives $50,000. Here's the question. Would you rather have had the $50,000 or the love? What would you rather have? I think a lot of times in our world today, people say, well, just give me the $50,000, right? I can, I can find some fun things to do. <laughs> you know, I can, I can build an investment. I can, I can have a better 401k. I can have a better retirement. But who are you going to spend it with? What's your life going to consist of? Isn't having the love of family, the faithfulness, the provision, the protection, way more valuable than just some inheritance that you'll get at some point and then you can spend it on yourself. God's world, he intentionally put families in it because the whole point of life is not how much money you can make with your life. It's not how busy you can be, how much you can get done. The point is to love and be loved. And he put families in there in order to let that happen on a personal, caring basis. And therefore, we care for one another. We protect one another. We honor one another. Why? Because we have people in our life who are there in the downs and in the ups. They're, down, they're there for the sickness and the health. They're there for the fun and for the sorrow. And they're there. And they walk with you through things. And they help you. And they push you. And they quarrel with you. And it's all a part of how God designed it. So that we know ourselves. And we know others. And ultimately we know God in a much more full way than we could ever know ourselves or others or God without it. So will you honor those who are part of your life? Are you grateful for them? They showed up. Well, for those mothers and fathers, they showed up at the beginning. Siblings sometimes later on, right? But they're a part of your life. God put them in your life. And they're not perfect. None of us are. It's not about perfection. But if they've shown up, if they've provided for, if they've cared for you, if they've protected you, are you grateful for that? Will you honor that? Because God puts all types of people in our life. 
not just physical relatives, but spiritual relatives as well. And so one of the ways you could honor is if you have a spiritual or a physical mother you'd like to honor, you can grab one of these flowers here and share it with her today. We'd love for you to do that. There's other ways you can honor. Maybe you're dropping a card. Maybe you just need to obey and clean up your room, you know. Or maybe it's a matter of, hey, I need to say some things because I want to honor you for what you've done for me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for families. We're thankful that we can provide for one another. That we can see needs and we can act on those. We're thankful that we can protect. We can, we can recognize there's danger out there in the world. There's violence out there. And we can, we can guard one another against that in a variety of ways. Lord, we thank you that you treated us as part of your family. You provided for us, Jesus Christ, and you protected us through his actions on our behalf. And you honored him by giving him a name above every name. And so we want to honor you as our father. We want to honor the son as our savior. We want to honor the spirit as someone who enables us and empowers us to walk with you. And we want to honor the, the people in our lives, grateful that they are there and that we are doing life together. Help us to do that. In your son's name, amen.